Hi, this is Alex Kantrowitz, author of Always Day One, and you're listening to my quest for the best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. Joining me today is Alex Kantrowitz. Alex was a senior technology reporter at BuzzFeed News and is now the on-air contributor for CNBC and founder of Big Technology, a newsletter and a podcast about Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. He's a graduate of Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and enjoys hiking. Alex is here to talk about his book, Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Bill. Great to be on. Hey, great to have you. Tell me, when you were growing up, Alex, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? The person I'd have to say is Stephen Kinzer. He was the former bureau chief for the New York Times in Istanbul. And I was thinking about making my way into journalism and applied to the school paper every semester to become an opinion columnist. And they turned me down every year until I decided to go to Istanbul for a semester. And I said, hey, do you guys want a column from Turkey? So they said yes. And I read Stephen Kinzer's book called Crescent and Star, which is this great look into the history of Turkey and the politics there. And when I was done reading the book, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to get this column. I'm going to reach out to Stephen Kinzer and see what he has to say. So I just cold emailed the guy and he called me back and basically opened his Rolodex. He was out of Istanbul at that point and said, you know, if you're going to get a chance to write about this, here are all the people I think you should call. And he ended up giving me, you know, far more than a semester's worth of material to, to work with and even said, here's some of the things you should think about as you report. So it was just a small half hour call with this guy, but it ended up changing my life in a big way. So he's the, he's the person I would say had, you know, the most influence when I think back to my childhood and where I am today. So at the time, you were a student on Long Island, New York, right? Yeah, I was a student in, at Cornell, so it was upstate. Yeah. I don't know. Does that count as growing up? I hope, I hope it uh, fulfills the question. Yeah. Sure. And I'm glad to know that even in college, you were continuing to grow. And <laughs> maybe you started there as a 14-year-old. I didn't know. So, No, no. I, I was definitely not on the accelerated schedule. In fact, it was sort of a miracle that I didn't fail out of the place in the beginning. But yeah, I feel like there were, you know, I feel like that isn't that a key to life, right? Just to be able to look at things and say, I can learn more. I don't have all the answers and definitely was helpful in that situation for sure. It was such an unexpected gift that Stephen Kinzer replied that way. What did you learn from the experience, not in terms of the actual contacts, but the advice and kind of how to treat people? I, I couldn't believe it when it happened. I was like, is this real life? So a couple of things that I learned. One is that you should never be shy in terms of making an ask because you never know what's going to come in return. And generally, it's just fear holding you back in terms of you know, your decision to decide not to go for something. And generally, I've, I've always lived my life after that of just saying, okay, let's go for it and see, see what happens. And worst comes to worst, you don't hear back. And the other thing that I learned from Kinzer himself was just like, it's amazing how 
much such a small gesture from someone can do for another person looking for help. And, you know, I think that that what he did was really special and sort of showed me how far something like that can go for someone else. And I've tried to keep that in mind, you know, going through my career as well. Do you remember a time when that experience influenced the decision you made to maybe go an extra step and be generous yourself with helping someone who asked, uh, reached out for help? Oh, for sure. I mean, for me, like the coolest thing is when I see like students uh, that are starting to pick up my book and read it for school. And I'm always like, all right, if you guys want to get on a Zoom and like talk through what you learned in the book, I'm more than happy to do it. So yeah, I would say that 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 type of spirit of giving back, like I remember what Kinzer did for me, I'm always trying to do it for others in any way I can. And so I think, yeah, that well, I mean, I feel like when you have experiences like that, it's impossible not to be influenced in a way that wants to make you do, you know, something in a way that someone that helped you did for you. So it's definitely something that helps motivate me in terms of, you know, what my purpose here is on this planet. I totally get that. Now, it's also a pretty easy extrapolation from there to becoming a journalist and being able to influence and be able to write about and interview some of the luminaries in the high tech field. What brought about the idea of sharing this message in writing Always Day One? Yeah, so I, I think that with Always Day One, it was another one of those like, you know, I'm seeing some stuff going on in the world that I think people could benefit from. And I have two options. One is to keep it to myself or two is to try to get to the bottom of it and then share it in a way that I think can help people in their lives. And that specific thing is that I just saw that the tech giants were working with work systems and technology inside their companies that were just different from any company I had seen before. And to me, the idea was like, look, like we have, we spend a lot of time criticizing the tech giants and hoping regulators will step in to make this economy more equitable. But I also feel like for the underdog, there's something significant that can be done when we put the tools the tech giants use in their own hands, when we teach smaller businesses to co-opt the tech giant systems, be able to use them for themselves then I don't think we need to be living in a world where the tech giants are dominating and we're all just, we're all just watching it. And that was really the idea behind becoming a journalist and writing this book always day one. It really gave you a sense of how these tech giants are operating on a completely different level. They're not operating for the transactional P&L short term. They really have a much longer term mission and objective in mind. And they're very upfront about it, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're thinking about just the P&L or you're thinking about how are you going to do this quarter, you're inevitably going to miss what's going on in the future. So last century, the average company would last 70 years on the Fortune 500. Now it's 15 years. So that means back then, you could have one idea and run your business on that same idea for a lifetime. Today, you know, you're going to have to have successive ideas every generation or so, and then you're going to be able to reinvent yourself and stay competitive. And the tech giants are this amazing case study because they're at this stage where most big companies like become big and become and start to you know hit their decline, and they keep reinventing themselves. And I think the way they've done it is exactly what you mentioned: is they've ignored the quarter, they've ignored looking at the short-term profit, and they've always they've always focused on reinventing themselves for the next opportunity. And by doing that, they've started to buck the trend that we see with most big companies. You know, like for instance, like a GE you know, where they eventually just became an octopus and sort of fell apart. And these tech giants are doing anything but. I think there's also a part of that that's due to a change in leadership at GE. But let's go back to these 
five companies that you focus on, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. Pick one and talk about just what strikes you about their innovation cycle and their mindset about keeping this. They're really huge startups, aren't they? I mean, they're always looking for opportunities and how they can use their assets and their infrastructure to maximize those opportunities for themselves. Exactly. And that's sort of the, the book is called Always Day One because they do operate as if it's their first day. The most amazing thing about being a startup in your first day is you can basically go out and attack any opportunity you want. You're not burdened by legacy. And then when companies get big, all of a sudden they start saying, well, we can't really do this because it doesn't jive with our you know, core business, or we can't do that because it might cannibalize what we do today, or we don't want to be our own competitor. Let's forget about it. And I think what Amazon has done really well is it's decided to keep getting into new businesses, no matter what it would do to their pre-existing businesses. Like the best example is they were a first party retailer and they decided to bring all their competitors. Once they built this popular site, they decided to bring all their competitors on and say, okay, you can sell on amazon.com too through the marketplace. And not only that, we will create, you know, a fulfillment and logistics operation so that when people buy your products from our site, we'll ship it out to people under our prime program and get it, get it to them in a day or two. And so I think they really, that's like one example of how they've decided to reinvent themselves regardless of what's going on, you know, in their current business. And they put that first party business at risk in order to build a third party business and both of them thrive. But then they've reinvented themselves over and over again. You know, they have Amazon Web Services, which is the number one cloud services, you know, based essentially company in the world. They have, I know, a voice computing business with Alexa, hardware manufacturing business with the Echo and the Kindle. They have a Academy Award-winning movie studio, a grocery business with Whole Foods and Amazon Go. I mean, the list goes on. And I think the way they've done it is, you know, people say, okay, they see all these inventions, they make it seem like it's a, you know, a decision. Oh, we decided to go through this, decided to go through that. And the way they've been able to do it effectively is really imagining the way that we work in the 21st century with the assistance of technology, with new systems that empower employees. And to me, you know, they are definitely the most interesting of the tech giants in terms of, you know, structuring their culture for the future. Alex, it wasn't that long ago that they opened it up for other people to sell on their platform. Do you remember what year that was? I don't have the, the, the exact year on hand, but I do know, I mean, it's just sort of, this is the sort of the metabolism of Amazon. It's one thing after the other, after the other. And in fact, like, you know, when I was there in Seattle, the last time I was there and they were building up a new new building, a new office tower. So the one their main office tower is called Day One. Their second office tower, right right across the street, is called Reinvent. And it's kind of funny for a company this size, you know, to have a building called Reinvent. Like, what do you mean Reinvent? You're one point, you know, one point five trillion dollars on a bad day. One thing I want to underscore for all the small business leaders listening: now the opportunities are still available for you to help others benefit from the infrastructure and support systems and technology that you've developed and turned into processes. Just the same way that Amazon built this out and was only selling as a first party retailer and then said, you know what, if you wanna sell your items on Amazon, if you wanna promote other people's items on Amazon, we're gonna create a portal for you to do that. And then the whole reporting and, and payment system to make that possible. Every business out there has an opportunity to do that if you wanted to, in the B2B space, the B2C space, and the B2G space. So I, I think that bears underscoring to adopt this mindset because there are untapped revenue streams and the ability to increase your influence and prominence 
in your own industry by taking this approach the same way that Amazon did. It really helped accelerate their growth, have so many more people rooting for their success, didn't it, Alex? Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And, you know, it was definitely not a popular decision inside Amazon headquarters itself. You had these people, you know, who were always, you know, working hard towards making this first party business a success. And now all of a sudden they had to make room for a third party business that could potentially usurp them as the as the moneymaker inside the company. And, you know, their products weren't going to sell. They had relationships with vendors that all of a sudden became more complicated. But I think that one of the things about working inside Amazon, people that thrive there, they understand that you have to always be yeah, welcoming of change. You know, so I've met so many people who talked about how it is, it's important at Amazon to work yourself out of a job. And you shouldn't be doing the same thing too many, ta- too many days in a row. And that's sort of the, you know, not, not to mean to get fired, to mean, means that they sort of end up doing something else. And that's sort of the ethos there. They're fast moving, they're nimble. And the employees that stick around are people that understand that in today's day and age, you shouldn't be doing the same thing, you know, too often, too many days in a row. And you should be looking for ways to adjust and improve and reinvent and transform. You talk about the importance of understanding an engineer's mindset, which is different with these high tech companies versus many others on the Fortune 500 list because they're usually run by people who have management or finance degrees. When somebody comes at this with an engineer's mindset, what are a couple of the key differences that you've observed? That's right. And you know, for me, engineer's mindset is sort of a fancy umbrella term, but I think that it's something that anyone, whether you're an engineer or you're not an engineer, can benefit from using. So I, the, the, you know, I used to work in sales, so I'm going to just go ahead and use sales as like sort of the counter example here. So I hope none of the salespeople listening get too mad at me. But in a, a sales organization is generally pretty hierarchical. So when you have an idea, you tell your, your boss, maybe a sales manager, and they tell their boss, maybe like an assistant territory manager, they tell their boss, you know, you know, the AVP, and they tell their boss, the VP, and eventually, you know, if it gets it makes its way to a decision maker, it's gone through like six or seven different jumps, and goes through this terrible game of telephone, where by the time it gets to the decision maker, you know, it's also also dependent on how the managers are feeling about each other, it's usually a much watered down and worse version of the actual you know, idea that the person had in the first place. An engineering organization, someone working with an engineering mindset, when you have an idea, someone in an engineer organization always feels empowered to go to the person who makes the decisions itself. There is no sort of, you know, fealty to the hierarchy in these organizations. They understand that this is, that their type of work requires being able to address problems quickly. You know, if you think about if one person's work goes wrong in an engineering organization, you know, they, they can blow up the whole thing. Like think about a power grid. If someone's work goes wrong in a sales organization, they're just going to, you know, miss revenue for their you know, set of accounts. So engineers are definitely, you know, typically more communicative, more collaborative, and their ideas get to decision makers. And so that's sort of my perspective on the engineer's mindset, which is how these tech giants are run, which is that they make it a priority to take employees' ideas and bring them to management as quickly as they can. And isn't there also a piece about building infrastructure and looking to create redundancies that also takes place within these companies that's more different in terms of a founder's mindset when you adopt that engineering aspect to it? Yeah, totally. So we've talked a little bit about reinvention. We've talked about the importance of having ideas get to decision makers quickly, right? And that's the only way you can reinvent is if you get good ideas to decision makers in rapid speed. But how does that happen? 
And so for me, I think what the tech giants do really well is they divide work into two buckets. One bucket is what I call execution work or anything that's involved in supporting your current products, current things that you are taking to market. The other bucket I think is called it, that I call it ideal work, right? It's anything involved with coming up with new ideas and bringing them to life. And most companies are just choked by execution work, right? They, they have all these resources they need to put into maintaining the business. That's why it's so cool to be a startup on your first day. You don't have to worry about maintaining and you know, making sure that you're you know, bringing in the money from your flagship businesses in order to stay alive. You sort of build from the beginning. How are the tech giants able to act like startups? Don't they have to maintain the businesses that they run? And what they do exceptionally well is they use technology to be able to minimize execution work to make room for idea work. I can give you one quick example if you're up for it. Oh, please. My favorite example on this is a program inside Amazon called Hands Off the Wheel. And Hands Off the Wheel, it takes some of the traditional activities in Amazon's retail organization and turns them over to computers. So Amazon has these people called vendor managers. And what a vendor manager traditionally did, they manage relationship, let's say I'm going to use Tide as an example, right? So they, they, they're on the phone with Tide and they're trying to figure out, okay, we need X number of detergent units and X fulfillment centers, you know, this and this, this fulfillment center, that and that fulfillment center at this price at this time, essentially making sure that every piece of that part of the puzzle works according to plan. And what Amazon realized was that it had data that it could use in order to be able to automate the stuff that these people were doing. They didn't need humans to be doing. So they set their machine learning team on it and said, can you figure out how to create this, how to take this stuff and turn it over to machine learning? So essentially, can you take this execution work and minimize it and make room for idea work? So slowly but surely, Amazon ended up automating a good handful of these vendor manager activities. Everything from pricing to negotiation to inventory management and ordering all went from person to machine. And then they gave they had a chance to take this these activities and turn them over and take yeah, take the humans activities, turn them to machine and then take the humans and say, what else can you do? Can you reinvent again? And many of the employees who used to be Amazon vendor managers ended up going to become product managers and program managers inside Amazon, essentially professional inventors building their next thing. My favorite example of this is there's a guy, Dilip Kumar, who used to run pricing and promotions inside Amazon's retail organization. And he went to work under Jeff Bezos as a technical advisor, which is someone who just sort of shadows Bezos to every meeting he takes. And he shadowed him for two years. And when he finished, he was like, oh, my work is about to be, my whole division essentially is about to be turned over to the technology. So I need to do something else. So he got together with a bunch of people from the retail organization at Amazon and said, what is the most annoying part of shopping in real life? And can we use technology to fix that? So they settled on checking out as the most thing that people don't like the most. You know, people might like browsing the shelves, but they don't like waiting online and you know, uh, spending all that time before they can get out of the store, you know, put the groceries in their trunk and go home. And so they said, okay, initially they said, maybe we can just make a big vending machine where you punch in the items you want, and it sort of spits it out. And they said, all right, well, this is just kind of kicking the can down the curb. And they eventually settled on Amazon Go, what became Amazon Go, which is an amazing store for those who haven't been to it. You scan them with a QR code. You pick whatever you want off the shelf. You don't have to scan any of the items, and you just walk out with it. And then a little bit later, Amazon will push a receipt to your phone, you know, saying, okay, we know what you got, and here's what, here's what you were charged for, and you don't have to interact with anyone on the way out. You don't have to wait on any lines. And so I think that this is sort of the, the key case here where 
by reinventing work, by saying we want people spending more time on ideal work, less time on execution work, Amazon was able to you know, essentially set its retail division on autopilot when it comes to first party fulfillment, make room for things like creating their next big invention in the form of Go, which I think will be sort of the way that we're going to end up doing you know, most of our retail in the future. No cashiers just walking right out. And I, and I think Go is the prototype for that. It seems to me that based upon other patterns that Amazon and Jeff Bezos have talked about and written about, they'll build these prototype Go stores and then probably license the technology to other retail stores that want to adopt it. Don't you think that's a, a likely scenario? Oh, I think that will absolutely happen without a doubt. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if those discussions are ongoing right now, especially because we're living in a world where face-to-face interaction with people is something you want to unfortunately minimize due to the coronavirus. So I know that Amazon is already rolling out a trial of using Go technology in a bigger store for itself. And, you know, I think that, you know, Amazon does a good job at taking a piece of every transaction on the internet by being, you know, not only the commerce layer for the internet with amazon.com, but the cloud hosting service for with Amazon Web Services. So can they be sort of that checkout layer for grocery and for other retail? I think that what Go is going to show is, is that they will be indeed. And the experience improvement is crazy. I mean, it feels like, you know, I went to this thing the first time and I thought I was stealing from the store. And I kept trying to find different ways to trick the technology, you know, pick up like two uh, cliff bars at the same time or go in and out really fast or, you know, I don't know, trying to hide myself. As you're doing this, do you see on your your smartphone that it's registering what you've got in your quote unquote basket? Yeah. So the, the magic is they end up pushing you the receipt like 30 seconds to two minutes after you leave. So you always are like, all right, Amazon, I got you this time. And then you see your phone and you're like, God dang it, how did they figure this out again? They, they got me. So yeah, the technology is good. I can attest the technology is good. I think that this is very much based on the pattern of so many other innovations they've done, where they build out this great infrastructure and then they say, you know what, let's create a portal and call it AWS to let others use and help monetize and, and create a revenue stream for this amazing infrastructure we've created. It just seems like it's so predictable, yet it's so delightful when it happens because it really brings advantages to consumers. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, if you if you think about why these tech giants are so successful, you know, they didn't force anybody to use their stuff. They just built stuff that people would rather use than anyone else. So I do think that the inventive layers, uh, the inventive processes have created products that people, you know, tend to love. And, you know, I think that's the first thing that you're required to do before you can start to build a foothold in a, in a market is, you know, it doesn't matter what your logo says or who's in your network. You've got to build a behavior of people who want to keep working with you, who want to keep shopping. And the tech giants have done that well. So what's the flip side of how Amazon benefits disproportionately in a strategic sense from making these technologies available and gathering data from people? Well, the first thing I, I want to say about that is, you know, I, I'm not defeatist about this. Like, I do think that Amazon has a lead. Subtitle of my book is how the tech titans plan to stay on top forever. But it's just plan, right? They have a plan. And, you know, I think that, like, you know, we definitely need a strong regulatory body to help check these companies. But on the other hand, like, I think that we should know that that you know, businesses definitely have some recourse against them. It starts by, you know, co-opting some of their systems and putting putting them into place in our own companies. So, but yeah, they they definitely do some bad stuff. (laughs) I won't doubt that. There's definitely some stuff that's 
unsavory and nefarious going on. The data is a good example that you brought up. They just have a stranglehold on the market. So for instance, like a third-party supplier could see that once they have an item that takes off, you know, Amazon essentially realizes there's a big demand there for that item on its site and starts to sell its own. That happens time and time again. Right. That's where we see online the Amazon basics items in the store, for instance, where they see that it's become a bestseller and now they come out with their own brand. Totally. Yeah. And I don't like that. I mean, there are other, you know, other retail organizations go to Walmart. You know, you'll see other retailers that sell their own stuff, you know, Costco, for example, um, like Kirkland, Sam's Club, all this stuff. But it, it is, you know, when you control the website, you have so much data, you really understand where demand is going when you own the customer. So there is stuff you know, in there, that's, that's kind of, kind of tough. I'm not a big fan of that. It's not something I would encourage. In fact, like in the introduction of the book, I talk about how this book is all about inventing new things, not about growth hacking, not about crushing the little guy. Well, it's important for everyone who's participating as a consumer, as a partner, as a user of some of these technologies to be aware of the advantages it gives them. They can make more informed choices. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like going in using, I feel like if you use the tech giants tools, you can actually create a pretty big business if you know how to do it well. So they are creating a lot of opportunity there. But it's almost as if like they're the landlords on Main Street right now, where like if you want to start a business, you kind of have to rent from them and they can jack the rent up. I mean, that's sort of how it, it's a brick and mortar example of what's going on with the tech giants. So like, OK, yeah, you were able to build a business in their house but they sort of are able to control the way you do it. And I think that just taking the, the business hat off for a moment, for me, one of the main messages I'm going to try to get out, you know, as I talk about always day one is that, you know, we talk a lot about how the tech giants are playing governmental functions. They're deciding, you know, they're, they're setting prices, for instance, or they're building, you know, if, they, if they're the landlord on Main Street, they're building the roads, right, that all the other businesses are using. And just like we lobby governments as constituents, I do think that over time, we're going to see people start to lobby the tech giants as customers. Amazon's number one leadership principle is customer obsession. They want to do that, what makes their customers happy. And I think that in time, we're going to see customers you know, get together and have a voice on, you know, when it comes to this stuff and say, look, we want you to treat these middle, you know, small and medium-sized businesses well. Because they're event- they are the lifeblood of our economy. They're the lifeblood of our society, not you, Amazon. And when the customers speak to these companies the same way they speak to governments as citizens, that's when I think we're going to see the biggest amount of change. And I think that small business leaders listening to this episode will hear this concept and find a reinvigorated priority to reaching out and really asking questions and engaging in this conversation with your own customer base to find out what they've been wanting, to find out what their frustrations are, and then seek ways like these tech giants have done in order to automate it, in order to make it more accessible, maybe to open up aspects of it that you might not have considered before, but would create even stronger bonds with your customer base. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the way to do it. Alex, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Yes, I am. Earlier, I asked you about a person who inspired you growing up. What song did you find inspiring? Growing up, I loved uh, Help from the Beatles. Knowing what you know about these tech giants and what they are seeking to do and how they look to become more powerful while making the lives of consumers better from their perspective, has it changed your behavior how you interact with any of these tech giants? Not really. I feel comfortable using their services, but I do it knowing 
the downsides. But I, you know, I feel like going in eyes wide open is the main key. I have an echo in my home. So, you know, that should tell you everything it needs to say. Well, now they've heard the interview as well. (laughs) Hi, Amazon. Hi, Jeff. Alex, what would you say is the best $100 purchase you've made in the last six months? Plane ticket to the East Coast. (laughs) I hate to say it. We've had a rough go of it in California. And I'm lucky enough to be taken in by a friend in the middle of these wildfires. And flights are pretty cheap. So I'll go with that. Although California, if you're listening, I can't wait to get back. What would you say are two or three tactical steps that people who are listening to this and who are running small businesses with staff and with companies and are looking to deploy their resources in more effective ways and have the opportunity to do so because business has been disrupted and during disruptions, it's always a time to recalibrate and see what you can possibly do. What would be a few words of advice and directions you might give people who have these assets at hand? You know, if your listeners are listening to this podcast, I'm sure they're pretty smart businessly. But one of the amazing things I found about the tech giants was that how deeply they prioritize getting feedback from their employees. And it can be from anyone. And, you know, our preconception of what a leader is in the past has always been, you know, someone that, you know, would jump on a picnic table with a megaphone with the whole uh, company rallied around and, you know, bark out the vision and then, you know, you know, yell like Howard Dean did in that primary. (laughs) Everyone follows along. And one of the amazing things about the leaders that I found, you know, with the tech giants is that they are the opposite of that. They are facilitators at the core, not visionaries. And they make a point to ask for feedback, you know, from anyone and they lead meetings. So, you know, for me, that's one tactical thing that that folks can do is find ways to prioritize feedback. Even in Always Day One, I talk a little bit at the beginning of the Facebook chapter of a feedback uh, training that I sat in on. And it sort of goes through the formula that they use to give feedback there. And I've used it in my own life and have found it useful. The other thing that I think that I'm very excited about is what I learned from Amazon, which is, and I know we talked about, you know, looking at the other companies, but it's something that's being done inside, inside Twitter and Google and Square today, which is that before any big meeting, they write their ideas down. And I think that what that, like, Writing ideas down before you embark on the process is something that's super helpful uh, just because it helps crystallize your thoughts and make sure that you don't go through that game of telephone, pushing an idea from one person through a bunch of different layers before it gets to the decision makers. I think having the lower level employees write ideas down as opposed to like, you know, telling to people orally or, you know, or writing them in a PowerPoint by writing them down in a document crystallizes the thinking, gets the fully baked idea to the decision maker in a way that they can quickly say yes or no. And writing sucks. I mean, I do, I do it for a living. It hurts. It's painful. But it's the best way to get your idea out there in its purest form, you know, deep, most deeply thought out. And so I've certainly done in my own life, like when I'm setting out to do something now, instead of just like thinking about it, I write a plan and not like a bulleted point plan, but like a narrative story of what it's going to look like. And I think that by doing that or trying to experiment with that, companies will see a lot of benefit. Alex, you mentioned going through a training that you found really useful with the feedback, learning how to give feedback and maybe receive feedback. What's a tip of listening for feedback and what's a tip for giving feedback that you've picked up? Well, yeah, I mean, you have to ask for it. You know, so I think that like a lot of companies end up, you know, they say we, we value employee ideas and employees believe it for like the first six months. And then they start giving feedback for ideas or like saying, hey, maybe we should do something. 
And they sort of get that creativity and that excitement beaten out of them by management because they say, oh, that's a great idea. And they never do anything about it. Or they say, you know, we really brought you here for, you know, one thing and, you know, you should be doing that. And people get the, they get the picture pretty quickly where they're like, I, uh, you know, they, they say, all right, I know I'm not here to actually be an idea person. I'm here to sort of fulfill this one small role. So I think companies, number one, if you want to receive feedback, you have to actually be receptive to that feedback. And then giving feedback, I mean, I'll just quickly go through the formula that they use inside Facebook. They say you should state the fact. So just objectively stay what happened. So for instance, like, you know, we spoke about you sending me a document last week, and it's been two weeks. And then the next thing, this is the important part, you, you share the story. So this is like the story, you know, that you you tell yourself in your head for like why that thing didn't happen the way you hoped. So you say something like, you know, I thought you didn't give me that document. The story I told myself in my head was that you didn't really believe in my project. And therefore, you know, you didn't, you know, think that this was important. That's just the story I'm telling myself. And then the ask, you know, can you help me understand? And by saying, you know, I, by, by creating that little bit of doubt, by saying this isn't what I think happened, this is the story I told myself, and that really sets yourself up for a conversation instead of a fight. Alex, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today. You talked about this wonderful cold call email you sent out to the New York Times, Istanbul a bureau chief or reporter who responded to you, not by some form letter or rejection, but welcomed you with open arms and opened his Rolodex and gave you suggestions in a phone call that really made a difference. And not just in your immediate assignment, but I think inspired you in a lot of ways, um, the power of being generous with others. I want to thank you for talking about always day one and how it makes a difference to be looking at the examples of these large businesses with the intention of understanding how they do that and how we can apply it to our own day-to-day businesses that we're running. Amazon, we talked about in detail, and we talked about how they're always set uh, set out to be thinking about their first day. In fact, they start off uh, and name their office tower in Seattle day one, and then the new one is reInvent. So they have that, it's baked into their culture, and it's on display every time somebody walks into one of those doors or references them. And if it's good enough for a large multi-trillion dollar company, there are certainly ideas that could be brought down into seven, eight, nine-figure companies. It's important to realize that you mentioned how when ideas are brought out in Amazon, they have an objective of keeping what focused on what's good for the company. An example of that would be when the idea to open up their portal and their online cart to other vendors, it really disrupted the business plans and operations for many managers within Amazon. But that's part of the culture. And you welcome that. You look forward to the disruption. And if you're really smart, you look to work yourself out of a job so that you're already anticipating and welcoming that change so that you could be free to look on to the next thing. We talked about the hands off the wheel program, where it's a deliberate effort to look to reduce manual labor so that they can free up people in the company to place orders, to negotiate pricing, to manage inventory, all those things. Like we talked about with the Tide example, in order to allow people to do what they're best at, which is being creative and coming up with ideas and building better business relationships. We talked about the Amazon Go store, which I can't wait to visit. And they've always got to have a plan. Amazon's dominance in the market isn't necessarily through coercion, it's through excellence. And excellence is something that each of us who are leading businesses 
can be thinking about how to bring into our, our organizations, how to inspire our people to adopt, and then to give feedback and reinforce and reward those who rise to the challenge. We talked about the importance of giving feedback and how it helps prioritize both strategic and tactical directions that large companies make and how small business leaders can also benefit from prioritizing that sort of feedback. So Alex Kantrowitz, author of Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. This was great. Alex, before we say goodbye for now, tell me, where is it we could find out more about you and your work online? can find me it's just bigtechnology.substack.com well we're going to link to your website your book all your social media channels to make it so easy for people to follow you and keep up with what you're doing learning and sharing alex kantrowitz once again i want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best thanks so much bill this was awesome hi this is bill and i hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.